Okay, the clock strikes 7am in Sydney. Welcome everyone to our webinar today, Tightening Trial Timelines. We're going to look at some advantages here in Australia to, um, to bring our clinical trials home as quickly as we possibly can, which we all know is extremely important to everybody's bottom line. Um, bit about myself, I, this slide's old, I've got almost 30 years experience in clinical trials now. Um, this morning, feeling every one of them, and uh, started out life in big CRO, went to um, a couple of pharmaceutical companies, found myself in medical device world here in Sydney in an LVAD company and loved it. And a few of us got together and conceived a, a new type of CRO that uh, really helps startup companies, biotechs, med device companies, as well as pharmaceutical firms in clinical trials navigation in Australia, New Zealand. So we founded Mobius 2008. I'm clinical director. Um, so part of my role here is um, business development, making sure we've got a pipeline of work, um, providing strategic advice, looking after proposals, budgets, contracts, and so on, and really looking after projects um, at the top level uh, with my project managers and clinical staff and data management staff all working extremely hard on them. I'm also a guest lecturer at the UTS here in Sydney. Um, so we'll talk today about startup recruitment and closeout, and I'll look at uh, just the landscape here, but then some real great tips that I can provide to you that we try to impart and use over here to um, ensure that our clinical trials run on time. So in the startup phase then, many will know, but some will not. So I shall talk to the Australian Regulatory Body, which is the Therapeutic Goods Administration here in Sydney. And um, it's really the, the biggest flag that we wave in what the advantages of using Australia for clinical trials as part of a global strategy uh, really means. So our clinical trial notification scheme, um, this is the Many of you will know a notification pathway as opposed to a competent authority approval pathway. It takes two days to actually notify TGA. Um, if everybody could just excuse me for one second. Apologies there. So, yeah, it's a pragmatic and fast regulatory pathway for clinical trials where the onus for review and approval of the clinical trial document package is largely on the Human Research Ethics Committee, or IRB. It's all done online by the local sponsor. Um, as I said, it takes two days to notify and receive an acknowledgement from TGA, and that is your legal um, pathway in order to supply unapproved therapeutic goods in Australia in that clinical trial setting. Just a note at the end there, the final bullet point, that there is an approval pathway as well. And that's really for class four biologicals, um, really significant gene altering or modifying um, novel drugs and so on. I, to be honest, I've been working in Australia from the UK for almost, well, over 25 years, and I've never actually had to use the CTA. So CTN is 99.5% of the clinical trials that occur in Australia's pathway. So in order to run a clinical trial in Australia and deal with TGA, you do have to have a local Australian sponsor. Now that could be an overseas um, sponsor subsidiary that they set up here. 
um, advantages to that, of course, is then that subsidiary can access our um, extremely um, generous R&D tax scheme. Uh, you know, smaller companies with a revenue under 20 million or in the development phase with no revenue at all can actually get up to 43 uh, cents in every dollar as a, as a cash back rebate at the end of the tax year for all R&D expenditure and clinical trials are um, eligible for that. So it's an extremely, I think it's the most, most generous tax incentive scheme uh, in the world at the moment. So all expenditure goes through that subsidiary. If that's not in the overseas client's um, plans to open a legal, you know, a, a local entity here, then of course we will act as local sponsor for our clients. And that just means that our local sponsor company is named on the uh, clinical trial insurance policy that enables us to then contract with our sites, indemnify them, and indeed pay them on the overseas client's behalf. So um, anybody that would like more information on the R&D tax scheme over here, there is a link and, and everybody can access these slides at the end of the webinar. Uh, it's recorded and there is a link here to the ATO's website for more information. So over the pond in New Zealand, their regulatory authority over there is called MedSafe. And in devices, there's actually no regulatory or regulations uh, governing medical devices or clinical trials right now. So there isn't even a notification required. Every, in pharmaceuticals, there is an approval pathway. It's called SCOT, um, the Standing Committee of Therapeutic Trials. And you can apply to, with, using SCOT, you can apply to the regulatory authority in parallel with IRB and um, they require the IMPD and the usual clinical trial document package in order to review and approve your study. It takes around 45 days, so it's not a long process. Um, and then in addition, we've got our ethics approval and the local approvals at the site levels. So this slide just uh, illustrates really the, the way in which the Australian clinical trial startup process works, ethics approval, first thing we're doing, but in parallel, we're getting our governance um, package together as well. Once we've got both, we can notify the TGA, we register on the publicly available uh, or publicly accessible registry, if that's appropriate, such as clinicaltrials.gov or the ANZCTR, and then recruitment can start. So, top six tips for startup. In Australia, um, we do have a single ethics review process, SERP, and that means we can have a single ethics acting in the lead. Um, it's important to have a, an ethics committee that is responsive, um, and the first thing that we check is which ethics committee that we might use. If it's a single site, obviously we, we tend to use the sites one, but we don't have to. We can actually go to a more expeditious ethics committee. Uh, and there are a few around um, that are faster than others and we know who they are in Australia. So the first thing to do is check their submission deadline. The last thing we want to do is, is be creating our clinical trial document package and miss the deadline by a day, because uh, in general, in the public setting, our committees meet monthly. So that can actually put you back um, terribly. Each ethics committee as well has their own requirements. They've, they tend to be quite generic, but some ethics committees have um, 
a, a two week before the, the, the ethics committee deadline, they like to review the package. There's an independent reviewer to make sure that everything is, is correct and so on. So it's extremely important to know which ethics committee you're going to, when the deadline is and what their requirements are. Some things that um, take a lot of time that people don't really think about at the beginning, if we're using quality of life assessments and tools, licenses can take weeks to obtain. So we've just had a bit of a nightmare over here trying to obtain um, something from the EORTC, it took three months. So again, very important to have it top of the list in planning that we initiate those licenses extremely early on in the piece because they do have to, um, uh, those quality of life documents, if the patient facing, of course, do have to be in the, in the uh, ethics package. It, again, at feasibility stage, it needs to be discussed what the actual clinical trial budget is for the site. Many people leave this till we've got ethics committee approval now, let's send the contract to the site and let them have a look at the budget and so on. No good. If we've got ethics committee approval and the site review the budget and say we can't work to this budget, you've just lost potentially eight weeks, potentially $10,000. And we've had situations in the past that the sites actually never agreed to the budget with the sponsor and the site fell away. So we actually present a budget. It doesn't have to be the full clinical trial agreement. They're all templated standard here anyway, but certainly the budget should be shared very, very early to make sure that that's agreed upon. And on that, we can actually put the budget into the standard clinical trial research agreement or clinical investigational research agreement and have that reviewed by our site's governance or research office in parallel. While the ethics committee are reviewing, we can have the CTA reviewed by the, the governance officer in parallel and that way, when we've got ethics approval, we put the package together for the site specific assessment, which is your contract, insurance, indemnity, um, ethics approval, and then we can put that in together knowing that our contract's already been approved in principle by the research office. Understanding our site's foibles, idiosyncrasies early. If it's a Catholic site, there's a completely different patient information consent form wording that we need to use. If there's a university involved, there tends to be um, some delays in ensuring where funding is being spent and universities can be quite an obstacle in that process. So if there is a university involvement or in an academic or tertiary hospital, it's good to understand at the feasibility stage, what sort of timelines that involves when we get to trying to get our site specific approvals through. Are there any particular state requirements? For example, in Victoria, they have a Victorian module. Um, and if you're, you're, you've got a multi-site application and you submit to a Queensland ethics committee as the lead, but you don't include a Victorian module and you've got a Victorian site, that Victorian site will never get up. So these sorts of things are very important to spot early and make sure that in the planning, one knows exactly what our packages need to contain. And finally here, you know, it's very difficult if a PI doesn't 
tell you information such as we're going on, I'm going on leave for three months, right in the middle of when you want to initiate and I need to sign everything and be trained. But if it's at all possible, <laughs> we always think it's a really nice idea for these uh, people and critical site staff to let us know if there's any planned extended leave. So we try to um, uh, have a conversation about that very early. Moving on to recruitment then. Um, now, I should say we were hoping to have Michelle Gallagher from Opal, who uh, are experts in recruitment, and she couldn't make it at, right at the last minute, sadly. And so I'm going to present these slides. These are my slides, not hers, but hopefully we can do another session with Michelle another time. So some tips about recruitment that we actually use here in, in Mobius Medical. So we ensure, again, recruitment is discussed even before we qualify sites. So when we're using fees our feasibility reports, we ask our sites where their patients are coming from, how many they think they see a week or a month or a quarter, depending on how rare the indication is, and document this, you know, per site. Now, again, they do tell um, uh, white lies from time to time that you find out later that uh, you might have to halve and, you know, take a few off the number that they say they can get a month or a week. But it's at least good to discuss that and have some understanding early. You revisit it at the qualification uh, visit and make sure that we've got a really nice graph built up of all of our sites and their expected enrollment rate and where the avenues of potential subjects are coming from. And of course, what this can do, and not always, if you've got an emergency indication such as stroke, um, clot retrieval, you can't advertise or look for a recruitment plan. But if possible, if we're doing a heart failure study, for example, um, we would create a recruitment plan early on. We would share this with the principal investigators and their site staff make sure that we've got great targeted socials campaigns using the likes of Facebook, of course. Um, we at Mobius have landing pages for websites that we develop, uh, chatbots that can screen out initially, and then we've got registered nurses on our staff who, who can actually call our uh, interested patients that the chatbot screened out and actually pre-screen them according to the eligibility criteria before they even get to the site. So this works really well for us. Um, obviously, all of these documents that we um, create in the recruitment plan, they all have to be ethics approved because they're all in the public domain. So again, early on, let's ensure that there's an ethics recruitment package created with screenshots of websites, of chatbots, um, and so on. If there's an e-consent in there, ethics need to obviously approve that. And then, you know, finally on recruitment, we're extremely excited to be embarking on more decentralized approaches at Mobius. You know, COVID has sort of fast-tracked, if you like, telehealth for the world. Um, and what we're trying to establish now in the company are avenues that we can reach more rural patients. We can reach, we, we can have our, you know, tertiary hospitals in our major cities, liaise with clinics in less populous uh, cities, but albeit they might have a very elderly population. 
And so many of our indications require an older patient. So why not tap into, you know, the dozens of cities and, and, and country towns around Australia and New Zealand and still access these patients who deserve the best of healthcare as well, of course. So we're really embarking quite heavily on, um, on this approach, both in recruitment and all our aspects of, of running our clinical trials. So tightening trial timelines when it comes to the last few actions and tasks that one does uh, when managing a clinical trial. At Mobius, we have our own EDC and we find that, you know, a solid data management plan that ensures the EDC is cleaned in accordance with clear instructions in the plan on an ongoing basis. It means that we meet our database locks. It's not rocket science, of course. It, it sounds, uh, you know, perfectly reasonable to do this, but you'd be amazed how many companies don't clean databases on an ongoing basis. And then there's a scramble at the end with listings reviews going around every member of staff in the place to try to clean these data, have hundreds of queries sent to site at the 11th hour um, that really bombards the study team and they don't get to them and, and it really can, you know, blow out your final few weeks of trying to close out your study and actually write your report up. Um, ongoing trial master file review. Again, I work with lots of companies that we don't look after the, the trial master file and then there's a big push at the end please send us all these documents that we're missing from our trial master file. So we try to keep our clinical trial assistants on a monthly basis, reviewing our trial master files for every single study that we're looking after, um, looking for gaps, looking for documents that need to be replaced, like updated GCP certificates, for example, making sure that all monitoring records are filed and the letter, the follow-up letter is filed with the report. All these sorts of things are done on a monthly basis. And that way, at the end of the study, it's a case of putting your closeout documentation into the trial master file, zipping it up, and it's ready for, you know, um, sending to our sponsors. So super important to keep on top of that. This is another one. Check on any upcoming leave that will stop us having final signatures, paperwork, or our blessed EDC signed off. Um, this is crucial three months out from last patient out to start to ascertain which sites have investigators who, of course, most sites have one principal investigator who is allowed to sign off the EDC. And if they are going on an extended leave and taking their family in an RV around Australia for three months, it's really good to know about that early. What can we do about it? We can have them delegate EDC sign off to somebody else. We can see if there's any way that on the day that we think we want them to sign off, they might be available with a Wi-Fi that they can actually log in. But knowledge is power and we need to know so that we can plan around any leave um, that the principal investigator has or any critical staff at the site because there might be documents that we need to send into ethics and so on that if the critical site members are not around for a particular point in time we need to sort of find somebody else to do the task. Advising and reminding sites of timelines every step, literally every week, we, we email the PI saying there's three weeks out, don't forget, please check your EDC password, 
there are data in there that you can sign. Let's get going on it. Let's get practice so that when the EDC is actually ready for total sign off, they're not saying I can't log in. I've lost my password. I don't know how to sign. We've got some plan in place to actually ask them to um, be ready. None of these points are rocket science, but they're tips, right? They th they're things that we found over the, the weeks and months help us um, meet these sorts of goals that we set ourselves. Um, and the final thing, of course, is to prepare, pre-prepare pre really, the ethics and the research office final reports slightly before the end of the study so that the minute the last patient is out and the final visit's been done we can actually submit these reports into ethics and give them time to review and provide their acknowledgement approval etc of those final site reports back because these things all have to wind up into the trial master file of course and, be, and until we've got them we can't fully complete our tasks so again just being you know, thinking ahead and making sure these sorts of things are done um, in readiness for a last patient out, for example, does save perhaps two, three, four weeks. Um, I just wanted to let everybody know a little bit about us, who's not familiar with us. So we're a boutique full service zero with pretty much end to end clinical trial management capabilities. We are uh, obviously working in Australia, New Zealand, and we know the regulatory systems extremely well in these regions. We've also got CRAs that we manage out of Australia, New Zealand, sitting in the US, the Netherlands and the UK at the moment. And they're contracted to Mobius and they're in-house experts in, or in-country experts that we project manage using our SOPs, our EDC, etc. from Australia. Works quite nicely for um, single site studies, etc., in these different countries. We've got a quality management system that's 9001 accredited. So that makes vendor audits a bit easier. It's obvious that we've got a really solid quality management system. We've had it for 20, uh, we've had it for five years now um, through surveillance audits. So obviously we do clinical trial management. We do everything from first in human clinical trials in all indications all the way through post-market. Like I said, we've got our own EDC. We use a Canadian platform called Decima or Decima. Um, and we can build that EDC using that platform in-house. Richard Brooks, who's our, one of our third owners of the company, is a software engineer by background. And he has trained two or three of our, site, uh, of our staff here at Mobius to build databases and validate them in-house. So that's huge cost saving for you know, uh, companies that don't want particularly to have the, the large expensive EDC vendors. As I said, we've got a data management department. Um, we've got a medical monitor that we tap into his, who's a Dutch physician from time to time. And we've also got a pharmacovigilance group in the pharma space who are extremely uh, experienced in pharmacovigilance and medical monitoring of clinical trials in, in oncology, haematology and all other indications too. Like I said, we act as local legal sponsor here because without that ability, there is little we can do for our overseas clients to help them actually run a clinical trial in Australia. So we take on all the risk um, and we act as local sponsor for our overseas clients who don't want to set up a subsidiary here in Australia. 
Biostatistics, of course, we, we offer, uh, we've got four registered nurses on staff at Mobius. Um, so they can do case support, uh, they can be trained the trainer and they can go out and actually be the sponsors uh, eyes, ears, hands on in a cath lab, in a theatre. They've got over 25 years each experience in nursing and general nursing, surgical nursing. So that's quite a, you know, and, and during COVID when nobody could travel, that was quite um, a nice service that we could provide to our clients more in the devices space. Similarly, they can act as study coordinators. Um, so our monitoring staff would never monitor a study if they're in a study coordinator role on the same project. So we have that um, quality there. And finally, we outsource our medical writing to a local um, lady that's got, yeah, 30 years experience medical writing. So really, we can do pretty much everything that's required. Um, that is all I have. And we've just got five or 10 minutes for some questions. Richard, can you jump on and let me know how the questions will happen, whether they will be re read out by you? Yeah, so every, everybody should have access to the to the question uh, button there on, the, on your screen. So if you've got any question, you could um, type a question in there or you put up your hand and I can uh, ask a question via chat. Either everybody's Looks like you've done me, such a great job, Suze. Or I've done a brilliant job and I've answered everybody's questions. <laughs> How easy is it for Mobius to organise R&D tax rebates for overseas headquartered clients? Uh, well, we don't, is the, is the answer to that. There are companies around and, and we've got a preferred supplier for this sort of a service called a Climb, uh, and they will administer... In fact, they'll set up a, a subsidiary for our overseas clients here in Australia, and they will administer all of the Australian tax office paperwork on behalf of that company um, and gain access to those R&D tax rebates. So in terms of, you know, where, where we come in, um, we just literally act in the CRO role if we're not local sponsor as well. Um, and would recommend, a, a, you know, a preferred supplier for that. Joy, lovely to have you on the call. I haven't seen you for years and years and years. Joy says, have you seen changes in clinical trials risk management approaches, especially with devices with ISO 14155 2020 compliance? Absolutely, yes, we have. Um, we developed, a, you know, many months ago, certainly at Mobius, a, a brand new SOP that really handles risk management site by site, person by person almost, but obviously at the project level, at the country level as well. 
Um, when it comes to you know, risk management from the sponsor's perspective, um, perhaps I've seen a little more information being managed in the investigator's brochure on risk management. I think it's always been there, Joy, um, but certainly as a CRO, we have stepped up, if you like, our, our risk management assessments right at the beginning. And it, we have monthly reviews of, of our risk tables for all of our clinical trials. How are decentralized trials managed? So we're still setting this up, Preeti, in terms, we've, we've done two clinical trials where we've pretty much used a full decentralized approach. So we've got principal, I'll just use one of the examples. Um, and it, it's a pharmaceutical study, it's a gel. And we've got women on this, it's a gynecological gel. And we've got women on this study all over Australia. And the principal investigator uses telehealth to contact those women um, He's got a department in a compounding pharmacy that we assisted in shipping the correct uh, and accounting obviously for the correct investigational product, uh, which was a crossover and blinded study. So it was, it was quite intense. Uh, to all the women out in their homes, they could go to their GP if they had any issues and the principal investigator would then have a conversation with the GP on any adverse events, of which there were few. Um, so look, it worked quite well. At Mobius, we're developing at the moment a full suite of SOPs to uh, ensure that we can offer a really robust, decentralized clinical trial management service uh, into the future. And um, I hope that's answered your question. And obviously EDC, EPRO, uh, e-consent, all of those things are all possible through our e EDC. So in terms of data collection, a lot of data can be um, entered directly from the patient in their home. Um, so yeah, the, the possibilities are endless. <laughs> uh, so there was actually a question that Val um, typed into the chat. Uh, any changes or improvements that you foresee in relation to the Australian government initiative, uh, one sorry, national one-stop shop for health-related human research. Absolutely, we're all praying that this is going to be as amazing as it's hoping to be. So the one-stop shop for health-related human research will be a platform where one can uh, submit to ethics, site governance and TGA all in the same platform. There's one set of rules, there's one application form, um, and there aren't state, all these different state requirements and different ethics requirements that can clog clinical trials management up. So the one-stop shop still weighs off. There's still a number of my colleagues at Mobius and myself are um, involved in the review, et cetera, on, on, an, on a regular basis of the one-stop shop. So with, and I saw it at ARCS and it looks absolutely incredible from a platform perspective. So yeah, we're really excited for that to be launched. I think that's it. And I think we're bang on 7.30 or whatever time it is in your part of the world. So I said one more question. Yeah, one more question just came in. Yeah. 
in studies for Alzheimer's disease, cognitive testing is needed. Do you think we can do decentralized studies for them? I really don't. <laughs> really. I, re I mean, unless it's extremely mild Alzheimer's. Um, and I mean, look, in many ways, the caregiver is integral. And if there's a caregiver that's consented to doing EPRO from their home with their partner or, or Alzheimer's, um, we don't call them Alzheimer's patients, person living with Alzheimer's, then it's possible. But I think if cognitive testing needs to be done, you know, by a specialist or a neurologist that might be quite tricky in the in sort of a rural setting for example i guess there's no reason in the world that the protocol can't be designed so that that there is the potential for the caregiver and the person living with alzheimer's to be seen by a specialist so i think if the design was really clever then it could be possible Okay, I will wrap this up. I thank you all very much for your attention. This is recorded, as you know, and it will be available um, in the next day or two. And I wish you all a lovely evening if you're stateside and a great day ahead if you're in Australia. <laughs>